Reverend Jenna Sullivan is the lead pastor of a faith community in Dallas called Life in Deep Elm. She grew up at Second Baptist Church and is a lot of fun on a Zoom call. If you're anything like me where life can feel scary and confusing and lonely, like why not have people to share that with and feel less alone in life? And there really is a church that won't screw you up too bad. (laughs) See, Second's going to get a whole new website out of this, like 2BC, a church that won't screw you up too bad. From Good Faith Media, this is the six-part narrative podcast, A Second Language. Episode 6, A Church That Won't Screw You Up Too Bad. Just kidding. Let's call it Words That Unite Us. Okay, Jenna Sullivan, young girl at Second Baptist Church around the new millennium. I was in a Sunday school class and we were talking about David and Goliath. And... I just really had so many questions. Miss Judy, like, I don't understand if God loves everyone and if God really is love, why would even Goliath be an enemy to God? Like, why are there enemies? And I don't remember what she said. I know she was caught off guard. I know she was probably not ready for that deep discussion at the sixth grade, you know, Sunday school class, but I do remember feeling loved, even though I questioned the lesson. I learned very quickly at second that I could, I could, I could question the lesson and I would still be loved and not just loved in a way of like, oh, God loves you, but like, I love you and I care about you. And I, I, really that's a that was a huge lesson to learn and you know they didn't have all the answers but they were showing up and leading in a way that was humble and authentic and really filled with grace and that was really life-changing for me reverend sullivan loved second baptist as a kid and still does I like her story because it's a reminder that for all of the social issues and public stands that the church was known for, all along they were still just teaching kids in Sunday school, paying the light bill, singing hymns, welcoming folks on Sunday morning. Hey Midlands, how are y'all? Hi. Are you like a celebrity this morning or something? Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not a celebrity. I'm more like the, uh, I'm more like a prison break guy. <laughs> this is Chris Ellis, an associate pastor at Second. He's been there since 2006. Do you know most of the people that come through the doors, or do you? I know most of their cars that they come in as well. So when you stay out here, when you stand out here every week, you just see same people, same cars. I know where they park, what they drive. So yeah, I do know. Despite everything Second Baptist Church had experienced by the early 2000s, it hadn't changed much from its founding in at least one way. It was still a largely white church something that's still true today. I asked the church's current deacon chair, Lanny Allenbaugh, about this fact. I don't think anyone is excited that Second is a predominantly white congregation. 
but it it continues to be. And so I think one of the things that becomes interesting about that is it does allow us to educate and reflect in a in a distinct way. So most of us have experienced white privilege at some point in their time. And so having that conversation, both whole group and small group, and really working through what does that mean has been good. I think the the utility in being a predominantly white congregation is that we have done some hard work on reflecting of realizing even when we didn't intend where we misstepped, where we um, needed to pause and listen more and talk less, where we needed to be patient and let someone else step forward first, and when we needed to be the town crier because that was the best use for us. It's a sad but important commentary that, in so many ways, Second was a white Baptist church like so many others. The things that set it apart were its downtown location and its willingness, through the years, to talk about race. However, like most other white Baptist churches, it had said little about another issue gaining public traction, sexual orientation. Here's Reverend Sullivan again, talking about her childhood at Second. I did not have an awareness of of that I was gay as a kid. I, I think in some ways my being at church all the time, instead of being interested in boys, like I laugh about that too. I'm like, you know, I wasn't like trying to date. Like I just was at the church. I really didn't have that awareness of myself. And I think it really wasn't safe to know that you know, second wasn't at a place of, of full, of full inclusion at that time. So I think my body just like hid that information basically. And just kind of, um, I think that I, I performed heterosexuality, you know, in a way of like, that was sufficient in high school and just was so straight passing that I think it just never was an issue for me of like, gaining acceptance at second. I don't know what would have happened if I had known that earlier. I think I would have been loved no matter what, but I think there was still a lot of exploring happening. And I'm really kind of grateful that my body did stay in survival mode. And, you know, I I was an adult when I kind of like discovered this about myself. So the church is so complicated. Like it's not going to get everything right. And it gets a lot of stuff wrong. And I think if we try to think of it in terms of all good or all bad, um, we we miss it. God's grace is in all of it. And I do still love the church. I do. Of course I do. While more traditional churches still reject same-sex relationships, for example, there were other progressive churches that had already become, quote, welcoming and affirming. Deacon Chair Lanny Allenbaugh remembers going to a sexuality conference for church leaders around 2012. The primary thing was basically on where on the welcoming, affirming spectrum are we going to land? It was a really good experience. I met a lot of wonderful people. There were insights into like gender constructs and sexual identity constructs that I had not experienced or thought about. 
But we came home from that conference and we needed to report out. And I thought what was going to come out of my mouth was something like, we need to start having this conversation slowly and, you know, thoughtfully, but we need to start this. And instead, what came out of my mouth was, no, we are not ready. We, we are going to split the church in half. We are going to kill ourselves. This is going to be the end. This is where we just go up in like a flame of glory. Like this is not going to happen. We do not need to do this. Here, I want to thank Alan Baugh for articulating a thought process that is cooked into the lives of churches and institutions. Dale Cowling experienced it. He wrote about it in an essay he titled, Protect the Church? In it, he unpacked his thinking in the run-up to preaching to his congregation during the 1957 school integration crisis. What to say? If I do speak out, Cowling reasoned in the essay, It will destroy the church which I serve. Many members will be offended. There is the very real possibility that the issue will divide the church and destroy the fellowship. This would mean a crippling loss to the budget. Cowling wrote that he kept asking himself, do you have a right to do this to your church, your family, your future ministry? Cowling wrote that his initial conclusion was, I must protect the church. As you may recall from episode 3, Cowling originally planned to say nothing about the crisis. I must protect my beloved church, he told himself. But then he recalled Jesus saying this to his disciple Peter, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Protect the church, wrote Cowling. Such an attitude can only succeed in causing the church to withdraw from the vital issues of life and thus grow decadent from within. Such protection could only succeed in protecting the church to death. Underline exclamation point. But I was just so scared about what was going to happen. And it it was a moment of honesty. And it's not one I'm super proud of because it was cowardly. Um, It was untrusting. Um, It was putting a quote-unquote issue that didn't personally affect me on the back burner because I was scared of it. This podcast, A Second Language, will be right back after this word from Christians Against Christian Nationalism. I'm Mitch Randall, CEO of Good Faith Media and a supporter of the Christians Against Christian Nationalism campaign. Christian nationalism is a political ideology that seeks to merge Christian and American identities, distorting both the Christian faith and America's constitutional democracy. Christian leaders and others have long discussed the dangers of Christian nationalism, But in 2019, Christians Against Christian Nationalism was formed to call out Christian nationalism and the threat it poses to our faith and to our democracy. Visit the campaign at christiansagainstchristiannationalism.org. There you will find a statement providing a more accurate picture of how American Christians view Christian nationalism. You can read and sign the statement, get articles and books and podcasts on the topic, share the campaign across social media, and much more. 
Help us call out Christian nationalism. Visit ChristiansAgainstChristianNationalism.org. Welcome back to A Second Language from Good Faith Media. About the time Second Baptist was getting ready to call a new pastor, conversations about and policies regarding same-sex relationships were becoming more prominent in the culture at large. Enter Preston Clegg, Arkansas native. This was this issue was in the closet at Second. I remember asking the search committee in 2013 when I came here what challenges they saw on the horizon at Second. And near the top of that list was the next pastor will have to lead us through um, you know, discerning where we stand on matters of human sexuality. And so I came here knowing that, and I, I came here at peace knowing that because really any church that I ever cared to pastor, that was something we were going to have to talk about. So we're all well and good. In my mind's eye, I thought I would be here for five or six years, marry and bury and earn trust, and when I had sufficient pastoral capital, we would talk about it. It didn't play out that way. In 2014, I had, so I had been here a year, and it had been splendid, like splendid. But in 2014, there was a, a stay on a Supreme Court ruling that opened up same-sex marriage. I think it was a week or 10 days, something like that. And so there was this flux of same-sex marriage. There were people driving by City Hall getting married. Well, here I am, the pastor of this church with this reputation of being a more progressive church in this city. And what we had was a lot of assumptions, right? External assumptions, people outside thinking they knew where Second was, and some internal assumptions about where Second was. But, but we had no clarity. So, for, about, for those 10 days, I was basically in, in the fetal position in my office, scared to death that the phone was going to ring. And one day, uh, and this is going to sound super preachery, and I don't mean for it to, but one day I felt like the Spirit of God said to me in no uncertain terms, the fetal position is not a gospel posture. I went home with that, like on the drive home, that phrase. And I thought, we can do this. We can have this conversation in a way that is biblically faithful, theologically rich, that honors every voice, and live to tell about it. Reverend Clegg then spent the next several minutes of the interview laying out what the church did next. Nine months of meetings with the deacons. They read, they talked, they sat in a circle so they'd have to look at each other. They shared fears and hopes. They then offered months of church-wide discussions on Wednesdays. Somewhere amid all the description of process, Reverend Clegg thought to remind me that it was Little Rock, Arkansas. 
you don't affirm LGBTQ folks to grow your church, he told me. The last Wednesday night, I told the church where I was, which was a place of affirmation, that I, I felt like LGBTQ people should be fully affirmed in the life of our church, and that the same rules that applied to us uh, applied to everyone, uh, including them. One, of, one mistake I made is all throughout that process, I told the church, we're not going to vote. We're not going to vote. Uh, voting creates winners and losers. Voting creates us and them. But we came to this impasse where we had been talking about it for three years at that point. Deacon Chair Allenbaugh again, processing her own earlier misgivings about the churchwide conversation. As we did have the conversation slowly and gracefully, as we should have, <laughs> um, what I realized is it was because I did not trust the congregation to come to the right conclusions. And so I looked out on people, some of whom are my parents' age and older, and I made assumptions about the wisdom and love that they had the capacity for, and I was very incorrect. So, in April of 2019, we voted. There were probably 120, 130 people in the room, and the vote was on a statement of inclusion. The statement says, because our identity is found in Christ, we welcome all people, regardless of race, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, marital status, physical and mental ability, and nationality, into full participation in the life of this congregation. I think we lost about six families in our church. Uh, I love those six families and still have pain that they're not here. Jim Mallet. He's been hurt by some folks that have left, and uh, it's just not comfortable to, to get into that. But there is a price to be paid if you're going to take a stand, and, uh, and seconds paid the price through the years. When my colleague Starlet Thomas and I were with Jim and Gail at their house for dinner, I asked Gail if she was ever afraid of anything in these times. It's not fear, it's dread of, of seeing your friends in this recent uh, <clears throat> study of LGBT, um, our good friends, pillars of the church that we've, they took care of our children, they, we've loved them forever, and uh, they were okay with everything until it came to marriage and they could not accept marriage between two of the same sex and uh, we lost two of our dearest friends um, anyway um, and they left hurt they felt like we had we had betrayed them by not agreeing with with their stand it's just, and I felt uh, sad and, and just... I honestly believe that God is in control and that even though we're taking some tough stances, it's, it's going to be all right, you know. Reverend Sullivan, a child of second. It's been so sweet to get to watch Second 
become what it is now because now it's the church that oh my gosh if seventh grade jenna came to that church like my whole life would have been changed the young people now at that church they get to really feel safe they have such an accepting place and that's going to be that's going to continue to change lives dr sarah Tarek again but when i saw preston talk and when i would he- listen to him talk about faith or talk about justice, I was immediately drawn to his words. And I thought, I think I need to be this guy's friend. If I were to ever leave my faith, I would become a second Baptist. And I think it's because I see him speak a language of deep compassion and love um, and and a deep understanding and deep connection to justice in a way that I haven't heard. I've heard very, very few people speak like that. If there's a better preacher, pastor, leader than Preston Clegg, you need to tell me about him. Simple fact is, he's one of the smartest men that I know, most well-read, um, and can communicate as well from the pulpit as anybody I've ever heard, uh, and can say things that need to be said in the kindest, most gracious terms, but uh, are solid in what he's saying. So when I met him, I was like, what is a second Baptist? Like, what's the difference between first Baptist and second Baptist? And I always thought Baptists were a certain way. And Baptists don't come to interfaith Thanksgiving dinners. It's the Episcopals and the Presbyterians and the Methodists, like Baptists. And so I started, you know, I Googled second Baptist church. And then I learned what the tradition, the tradition of Second Baptist Church was, and that sort of really solidified um, my view. And I actually, a lot of the the approach that Second Baptist has taken to faith and justice and the community is very similar to what I've done um, in my faith world. And the bottom line is, is willing to take those stands. And uh, I mean, he and I've talked. He has the uh, freedom in the pulpit, and uh, and he knows that, and, and doesn't take advantage of it, but he does speak the truth. Here's Eric Higgins, the sheriff of Pulaski County, and a friend of Reverend Clegg's. I've watched what he's what he's doing with the church and the challenge of challenging the church to uh, recognize the the past and the role the church has played in being uh, passive or um, participating in things that are unjust um, and trying to help people understand that, acknowledge that, and, and understand the role of the church moving forward. Here's an example of Reverend Clegg doing just that in a sermon from March 2019. I know, brothers and sisters, that I talk a good deal about race from this pulpit. And some might think a bit too much. Brothers and sisters, I'm saying to you today, if we're not talking about race and the way it has shaped everything in our society, then we are not talking about it, whatever the it is. And while no one in this room is guilty of the sins of our past, we are all and one responsible for the redemption of our future. And that begins by telling the truth. I noted the pastor's nod toward perceptions of too much talk about race. I also noted such in Brooks Hayes, 
some 60 years earlier. Perhaps you're tired of the subject of race conflict, but until perfect justice is done, we must stay with this task. There is a provocative thought in what Isaiah had to say. God will not rest until he establishes justice in the world. No justice, no peace. And I need white allies on this side. I need black bodies further away from me. On June 6th, 2020, in the midst of protests after the murder of George Floyd, a friend of Kevin's, jazz saxophonist Marquis Hunt, organized a rally in Little Rock. It was called the Take a Knee Rally. It was hot, and a couple of months into the pandemic, everyone was wearing a mask, even outdoors. Kevin and Angie were there, Preston Clegg was there, so was Chris Ellis. I traveled over from Nashville to cover it. Hi, my name is Marcus Hunt, and I'm today on the steps of Teresa Hoover United Methodist Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're doing a, a, a rally, an action. It's called a conciliatory activist rally that we're calling Take a Knee. My name is Chris Ellis, and I'm the Minister of Mission and Outreach at Second Baptist Church. And I am here today because 401 years of oppression of black bodies is far too long. It's time for white America, it's time for the white church to stand beside our African-American brothers and sisters and demand change. There was music and there were speeches. The rally ended with a short march to the 12th Street police station with white allies chanting, thank you for your service, please protect them, and taking a knee in the street. I noted one sign in particular among the marchers. I don't know if it was a wish, a plea, or a claim. It read, indivisible, unable to be divided or separated. I don't think we're finished. I don't know that this process finishes Um, I don't know that there's a finish line that we get to define at least, but I I see and I hear conversations about justice and race and our community, and they they are headed towards light. Headed towards light. We end where we started, with a devout Muslim woman from Pakistan walking into a Baptist church in Arkansas, taking the microphone from the pastor, and talking about Islam. And I decided that I have to just get up and um, raise awareness about my faith. We have this beautiful verse in our holy book, Quran, which talks about the common word, and God refers to Muslims, Jews, and Christians, all of them, and say, oh, people, come around a common word. It was Sunday morning, February 12th, 2023, that Sophia Saeed became the 34th recipient of the Brooks Hayes Award, the first non-Christian to receive it from the distinctly Christian and Baptist church. Here's Reverend Clegg welcoming Miss Saeed and presenting her to the congregation. I want to say that she's been a good friend to me personally in this city. 
She has been a good friend to Second Baptist Church, whether you've met her or not. I have bumped into her numerous times around the city trying to do the work of justice and inclusion. And she's always in the right place saying the right thing in the right way at the right time. Sophia, this plaque says, The Brooks Hayes Christian Citizenship Award is presented to Sophia Saeed, Second Baptist Church, Little Rock, Arkansas. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? Micah 6, 8. We're most grateful for you and your work and to call you a friend. Sophia, a name meaning wisdom, received a standing ovation from a bunch of Baptists in Little Rock. I was struck by the cloud of witnesses that had gathered downtown that morning. In the pews were Jim and Gail Malik, Lanny Allenbaugh, Chris Ellis, Ray Higgins. Kevin was there, sitting next to Ali, a Muslim friend. All there at Second Baptist Church in downtown Little Rock. The last word will belong to Brooks Hayes. You'll recall that he traveled to Russia in April 1958. It was a momentous trip in a tumultuous time. Shortly after returning, Hayes shared his experience with Southern Baptists on the last night of their annual convention. I tell you, my friends, I came back to America a better man and a better Christian. Believing that we have something in our faith that overleaps the barriers of language and of ocean and of race and of governmental differences. The country lawyer had ambition. And on that Friday evening, May 23, 1958, he used it to reach for the heavens. Like the church he found in Little Rock, he struggled to unite that which had been scattered. But words, language, can help. Here's Brooks Hayes recalling his feelings as he left the Soviet Union to return home. This is the last thing he said that night in Houston. He would leave the podium and go on to lose re-election to Congress a few months later. And as I flew into the sky and waved a farewell to them, I remembered and I remember now the words that were above the pulpit, the words that unite us, the basis of our faith, the Russian word, Boch Yesledov, God is love. You've been listening to A Second Language, written, produced, and narrated by me, Cliff Vaughn, of Good Faith Media. The executive producer is Mitch Randall. We hope you'll like, rate, and share the podcast. We are a nonprofit, and that really helps us out. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. 
Thanks to our interviewees, Kwame Abdul-Bay, Lanny Allenbaugh, Rebecca Cowling, Preston Clegg, Chris Ellis, Wendell Griffin, Stephanie Harp, Eric Higgins, Ray Higgins, John Kirk, Jean Levy, Jim and Gail Malik, Jenna Sullivan, and Sarah Tarek. Special thanks to my colleague, Starlet Thomas, who hosts the Raceless Gospel Podcast from Good Faith Media, and to Callie Chisholm for the artwork. And huge thanks to Kevin and Angie Hefner. Thanks to Lisa Spear and Taylor Lawson at the Washita Baptist University Archives, Taffy Hall at the Southern Baptist Historical Library and Archives, Carolyn Wilson in the Special Collections Research Center at the William & Mary Libraries, and Cassidy Long in Special Collections at the University of Arkansas. Other material comes from the archives at NASA, the Library of Congress, and the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library. Thanks to Jim Pfeiffer and Sandra Hubbard, as well as Billy and Mark Heflin. Thanks to Patrick Fleming and Debbie Huff, Marquis Hunt, Joe and Charlotte Jeffers, Connie New, David Rice, and everyone at the Bramble Market. Thanks also to the Community Bakery in downtown Little Rock. Our music comes from Pond 5. If you are interested in learning more history about Little Rock and Arkansas, visit the fabulous Encyclopedia of Arkansas.net, a project of the Central Arkansas Library System. Our podcast show notes will list other helpful resources. Check out our other podcasts from Good Faith Media, including our first narrative podcast, Brother Molly, about the life and work of theologian Molly T. Marshall. We thank you for listening. This has been the six-part narrative podcast, A Second Language, released in August 2023 from Good Faith Media.